So we're going to be starting with Acts 11, verse 27. The last time we saw Peter defending his ministry to the Gentiles, and we saw also a shift of the evangelistic base to Syrian Antioch. Today we're going to see that God sovereignly allows the death of James, but the sparing of Peter's life. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Starting with verse 27. And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now, we're halfway into the book of Acts, and we see the great apostle Paul, still called Saul at this time. He's only an errand boy at this point, for lack of a better term. Why did it take so many years for Paul to recognize his full potential? Because about at this time, it's about 10 years since his conversion. Well, let's take a look at his spiritual life in four steps. We saw in Acts chapter 9 his conversion to Christ. The second step is he saw a little hiatus into Arabia, and that was covered in Galatians 1. Most likely to be alone with the Lord, to sit at the Lord's feet, and to learn from him. This is a very important step. If you try to skip this step, the results can be devastating. The third thing was a brief evangelistic work that he started. It starts out with a bang. He ends up drawing too much fire to himself, too much controversy. And then we see in Acts chapter 9 that he's whisked away to Tarsus for his own protection. And the fourth part, here in Acts chapter 11, again, he's a courier, for lack of a better word, to bring relief to the Judean church. And you may say, well, isn't this the great apostle? Didn't he write roughly half of the New Testament? And one of the best expounders of Christian doctrine. Why so much downtime prior to leadership? Well, there's a biblical doctrine of testing and proving prior to leadership. Too many crash and burn in ministry because they're elevated too quickly without going through the proper, uh, this proper process, this biblical process. Luke 16 says that we must be faithful in the little first before we can be faithful in much. And the key is to prove to be faithful. Only then can we move forward. If you, well, we're going to see as we go further, actually starting next Sunday, that John Mark, you know, younger guy in the faith, uh, he goes with, with um, Saul and Barnabas, uh, missionary trips, the whole deal, and he, he has a failure in ministry. Early on, he just departs and he leaves them and he goes back home. And that causes a rift between Saul and Barnabas. So you see Barnabas ends up later on taking John Mark and Paul takes uh, Silas. So you see John Mark's failure in ministry causes a rift. I remember doing a sermon on leadership in Acts chapter uh, 8 and I said that one of the important qualifications is the ability to take responsibility for our actions. It's very important. You can't push, push something off on somebody else but to take ownership. As a police officer for 16 years, very common for me to take life and death calls. My judgments or my mistakes have huge implications. I'll give you an example. I still remember this incident like it was yesterday, and it was 15 years ago. My first year training as a rookie in another department, we got a call for a domestic, and they said it was pretty bad. I could remember we had to be doing at least 90 miles an hour to the call. And we got there, but we were too late. The husband had already stabbed his wife, and she ended up dying. 
So I ask myself, well, what if I did 100? What if I did 115? Then I say, well, gee, in the late afternoon with kids on Franklin Boulevard, maybe that wasn't a smart idea either. So you kind of question, you know, could I have done a better job? You see, again, my decisions result in life and death consequences. Every day I put on that uniform, I take responsibility for my actions. So likewise, our behavior in ministry, why would we look at it any less? See, we're dealing now with spiritual life instead of physical life. Physical life is important. We all want to you know, live a full life, but eternal life, spiritual life is even more important. So we as ministry leaders must also res- accept responsibility for our actions. One of my earlier mentors, Pastor Luis, would say to me, his favorite line was in a situation, he'd say, what do you own? What have you done wrong in this situation? What can you take ownership of? I like that. Now, the caveat to all this is if we drop the ball, that God can use somebody else. But do we really want to be put on the shelf and let God bypass us and not let us be part of that that process of giving glory to his name? Put us aside and use somebody else because he can do that. So the Apostle Paul had to be tested and proved and found faithful in the little prior to being catapulted into leadership, and so what must we? Now, going back to the text in verse 27, we see that there were prophets that moved from Jerusalem to Syrian Antioch. So you see, along with the evangelistic base, we see prophets coming into this area. And verse 28, a little bit about the times. He speaks about the days of Claudius Caesar, for those of you who are into history. Claudius Caesar, the emperor, reigned from A.D. 41 to A.D. 54. Some Roman emperors in New Testament times since the birth of Jesus were Augustus, which was named, Tiberius was named, Caligula, he's not named, um, Claudius, Nero, during the time of Paul's trial, and then he's Galba, Vespasian, and then a few more, and then Domitian during the time of uh, Revelation, that John writes the book of Revelation. But we're also introduced here to the prophet Agabus, This guy was preparing God's people for hard times. He was letting them know that thus saith the Lord, there's going to be a severe famine. And this was one of the jobs of a prophet. One of the jobs of a prophet was to warn God's people of impending danger or impending hard times. And then we see over time there was an an acquiescence, so to speak. If you read Hebrews chapter 1, the first few verses, it says that basically there's an acquiescence from the, uh, the prophets to to Jesus Christ himself. And as the prophets start to get less and less over time in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit takes over and uh, uh, Jesus and God's word takes over. The secular historian Josephus also records this devastating famine in Judea. And I go back and forth because secular history backs up pretty much all of what the Bible says, good secular history. Now, God always prepares his people for survival. There was an interesting uh, prophecy conference that I went to, oh, many years ago. Maybe some of you have heard of Chuck Missler, very smart guy, Dave Hunt. They had a few of them up there. And they would just, you know, every once in a while they would talk about the Bible, what the Bible says about prophecy, and current events, and kind of merge them together. But Missler and Hunt agreed on a lot of things. One thing they didn't agree on was Y2K. Remember the whole Y2K thing? The computers are going to crash. We're going to go back to the dark ages. Well, obviously that didn't happen. Missler, he didn't, I didn't believe he was doing the the sky is falling routine, but he was saying, you know, based on his knowledge that there was a good possibility that things could revert back, but he wasn't trying to scare anybody. 
Dave Hunt sharply disagreed. He said, no, God has always warned his people of that type of large-scale disaster. And one of the proof texts that he used was this particular scripture with Agabus. Even in the New Testament time, he said Agabus warned the people that hard times were going to come. Even we see with Joseph, going way back into Genesis, Joseph, God used Joseph's dream and Joseph being able to interpret Pharaoh's dream and Joseph in Egypt to warn his own people in Canaan that hard times were coming. So God always warns his people. Verse 29 and 30, the Judean church apparently was hit hard by a famine and they needed help. Now there's irony here. Remember, the church was basically birthed as fully Jewish. The church had some prejudice regarding Gentiles coming in, and we'll see that again later on in the book of Acts. And the Judean church was devastated by this famine. And the Antioch believers, who were largely Gentiles, pitched in to, to help them, to help save them, bail them out. And I see the moral of the story is to be careful how you treat people. And this is good for us, too. Be careful how you treat people. Now, from a fleshly standpoint, you could say, well, be careful how you treat people because you may need them in the future. But from a biblical standpoint, it's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them want them to do unto you, right? The recent Cleveland school shooting, I was reading about the story and the young man who went in and shot uh, some students and faculty, Asa Kuhn, he raised his gun to shoot one of the students. And this really struck me. And then he, he saw the kid's face and he said, oh, you were nice to me. And he put the gun down and he moved on. So... I bet you that kid was really happy that he was nice to him. But I, I, I tell you, I read some of these stories and some things just stand out to me. And that was one of the things. On a lighter note, there was a sister in church. Um, after I was the pastor for a little while and telling some police stories, she said, she took me aside and she said, I remember you. You pulled me over some years back. <laughs> and my first question was, was I nice to you? <laughs> And she said I was, and I was very um, kind. So that was a good thing. And actually, her and her husband are, are an asset to our fellowship today. So I'm glad I was nice to her. Again, the golden rule is do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. And it's something we can take with us. Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. The Herods, again, were a family of provincial governor kings under Roman authority. And the one spoken here is Herod Agrippa I. Agrippa I ruled Judea, Galilee, Perea, and Samaria from A.D. 37 through A.D. 44, after Pontius Pilate was deposed in A.D. 36. Now remember, Pontius Pilate had a lot of problems with the, how he ruled people. And he went from being really harsh to kind of backing off because he, he knew his job was at stake. And then he kind of botched the whole thing with Jesus. And eventually they just, Lucius Vitellius said, you're done, you're out of here. And he, he pulled him from governorship. So Herod Agrippa ends up taking part of his, you know, his territory. Now Agrippa I was the grandson of Herod the Great. If you remember, Herod the Great killed the Bethlehem babies, uh, you know, some time back. And he was also the nephew of Herod Antipas who, if you remember, he killed John the Baptist. So these guys have a, uh, these Herods have a sordid history. It's a whole, almost like organized crime. They're just evil men. But this guy wanted to curry favor with the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And Agrippa I, like the other Herods before him, was satanically inspired to destroy the church. And we're going to see how that changes. There's two points to be made here. 
Number one, as we start to see the apostles martyred, they're not replaced. We saw that when Judas had hung himself, the other apostles got together and they cast lots. And there was some question about that whole process. And they chose Matthias. But God seemed to choose uh, Paul. In this instance, as we see these guys start to be martyred, though they're not replaced. And that kind of negates the whole theory. And some denominations have this called apostolic succession. Almost where the church can trace their history of popes or leaders back to the original disciples or the apostles. Jesus laid the cornerstone, the Bible says, of the foundation. And the apostles laid the rest of the foundation. And actually, if you look at Peter, who was a, an apostle, right, his own words in the book of Peter, he said, we're all put together as living stones in a spiritual house. So we all make up that, that, that house of God, you know, that body of Christ. And again, we see more of an acquiescence to the Holy Spirit and the compiled word of God as Acts moves forward. The second thing is James made good on his promise to drink the same cup of, cup of suffering that Jesus did. If you remember in Matthew 20, 21 through 23, there's a situation and there's also in Luke's gospel where uh, whether James and John put their mother up to it or she did it on her own, either way, James and John, the disciples, their mother goes up to Jesus and says, can you grant it that one of my sons sits on your right hand and one sits on the left hand? And he said, you don't know what you're asking. And he turned to the, you know, her boys and said, uh, can you drink the same cup that I'm able to drink? Can you be baptized with the same baptism that I'm able to be baptized with? And they quickly said, we can. And he said, you will. So <laughs> this is where James ends up drinking that cup of suffering and he loses his life. And the question is, where would we fit in in the big uh, scheme of things? We, as Americans, live better than 90% of the world's population. You know, climate control, freedom of worship, nice cars. In the wintertime, you've got nice clothes, nice coats, keep you warm. Uh, but 90% of the world doesn't live like that. And we kind of get used to those creature comforts as Americans, don't we? I love my country. I'm very patriotic. But, you know, I fall into that category too, right? Could we part with a high-paying job if persecution came our way? In many countries, Christians are not allowed to make a good wage. As a matter of fact, in Egypt, many Coptic Christians come over. I think the, the division is 80% Muslim in Egypt and 20% Christians in the form of mostly Coptic Christians. They come over to the United States to make a better life for themselves. They could have great educations, be doctors, uh, lawyers, etc., but... The uh, Muslims get the better jobs first, and then if anything's left for the Christians, they get them. And it's not just in Egypt. It's in a lot of Muslim countries, communist countries. Uh, so the question is, if persecution came here and they said, Christian, you know, you're, you're out of that job. We're going to put an atheist in there. Could we still say strongly, well, I'm a Christian and, I, and I'll do that for the Lord? Something to ask ourselves. Could we part with our nice homes and our nice cars if calling ourselves a Christian meant, meant government confiscation? Again, in a lot of these countries, that happens. It's, it's a reality to a good portion of the world. Could we part with our precious freedom? We love freedom as Americans, don't we? I love freedom, right? Could we part with that precious freedom if sharing our faith meant we would be incarcerated? Well, some of you think, well, maybe that, that'll never come here. I read one time a few Sundays back about the Gideons preaching next to a school, and they got arrested for preaching the uh, gospel and handing out Bibles. So um, it's a possibility. Now, I've done prison ministry, but my motto for prison ministry is it's a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. 
So we have to really say to ourselves, well, that's a good point. What if things changed and persecution did come our way? Could we still stand strong and say, I'm a Christian, regardless of the consequences? And if we're honest with ourselves, probably most of us hope that that doesn't come in our lifetime. Verse 3. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when we, he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise, quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that was done, what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gates that lead to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked on the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. She kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now going back to the beginning, we see Herod is a great example, and this is good for election, election season, Herod is a great example of a bad politician, right? He puts Peter in prison because he saw killing James was popular. It was good for his, his public opinion polls, right, for his, uh, you know, his image. And this is, again, appropriate for election season. I would just say don't vote for the idiot that tells you what he or she thinks that you want to hear. Try to vote for the one who has some conviction, if that animal exists anymore. There were four squads of soldiers. Each squad had four soldiers, uh, so there was 16 total. They had to keep Peter secured as he was a high-profile prisoner, and he had escaped before. If you remember, when the uh, disciples were put in prison, you know, the Lord had them you know, get out and go back and preach in the open square. So this was an issue where, hey, this guy, they think maybe if they don't believe in the supernatural, he's like a Harry Houdini, he keeps getting out. Get four squads of soldiers there, get them chained to both of them. Normally they would just chain, in the Roman times, they would change them to one soldier, but this guy has one on each side of him. And there was, you see the inner and outer gates, the multitude of soldiers, 
uh, you can put that today, it's commensurate to Peter being in maximum security, the inner prison. Verse 5 says that there was constant prayer offered for the church. I would just say, pray for your leaders, as we're often under spiritual attack. I get a limited amount of time to talk to people after service because so many people come out. But I do, when I, there's some things I just pick up on and I, I hold in my heart. And there's some of you who say that we pray for the leadership regularly. And I don't just ignore that. I mean, it's, it's in here. And I appreciate that. It would discourage me to think that nobody was praying for the leadership. But I know that's not the case here. Prayer is very important. Verse 6. You have to get the context here. The persecution of the church is, is being ramped up again. And you see the ebbing and flowing of the persecution of the church. Persecution of the church is up. The disciples have been in prison before. Stephen was killed. Now James is killed. And Peter is next. Peter is next. The, the plan is when he comes out of the prison to do like a kangaroo court sort of deal and put Peter to death. So you have to put, Peter, uh, you have to put yourself in Peter's shoes. Imagine you in his position. And I like to do that. He might be anxious, or we might be anxious, and wonder, am I going to suffer the same fate as my brother James just did? At the very least, most of us would probably have insomnia. I'd probably be, I have trouble sleeping as it is. I'd probably be asking for the guards for a Lunesta or an Ambien to kind of put me down, right? Because without a miracle, Peter's dead. That's the, that's the reality. But what's Peter doing? He's sleeping. Peter's sleeping. Sound like a baby, as we'll read. You know, I just picture Peter as a husky guy, you know, fisherman, strong guy, very robust in his attitude. I don't know why, but I just picture him as a, as a husky guy. I could just picture Peter chained to each guard, laid out, and he's sawing wood, you know, not a care in the world. How is that possible? Because in John chapter 21, verse 18, Jesus promised Peter he would die as an older man. Peter knew that it, this wasn't his time. I don't know how God's going to do it, but I'm going to sleep because I'm going to be fine tomorrow morning. Peter gets what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. And the question is, do we? Because there are promises in the Bible that God makes to us. When he says, I will not leave you nor forsake you, I take that to heart. I, I lay hold of that. When he says, <laughs> when I think things are going wrong or I think I'm getting fleshy and I think, you know, maybe I'm you know, not good enough to be a pastor... I think that I know that God promises to finish the good work that he started in me. I know God's still working on me. And even if I take a step back, he's going to bring me three steps forward. And he's always going to move me in that direction. And he's always going to move us if we allow him to be transformed into the image of Christ. So there's a lot of promises, not just that Peter can hold on to, but that we can hold on to. I mean, there's dozens of them. There's probably hundreds of them in, in the Bible. So Peter slept good knowing his life was in God's hands. And I'm always impressed by Christians who are not moved by the storms. And I'm like, can some of that rub off on me? <laughs> you know, it's good stuff. Verse 7 through 8. So what happens is the angel appears and he doesn't see Peter pacing the floor. He doesn't whisper, hey, Peter, I know you're in there and you're, you know, you're, you're bug-eyed. It's 3 in the morning. Come on, let's go. It's time to go. He sees Peter sleeping soundly to the point where it says that the angel had to strike him on the side and raise him up. I could just picture the angel come in, hey, Peter, 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 get up. And he takes the stick or whatever and he, he whacks him on the side. Get up. Put your sandals on. Gird your loins. Let's go. We got to get out of here. You're going to get me fired. Let's go. Come on. You, you just got to picture the, 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 the scene, right? 
It's like getting my son up for school. I mean, he's out cold, he's peaceful, and I've got to practically dress him while he's sleeping sometimes. Verse 9. Not only did he wake up from a deep sleep, but he's involved in a supernatural event. Now, you have to, again, think about this. At first, he's not sure, according to the scripture. Is it a dream? Is it a vision? Is it reality? I mean, he, he's woken up out of a sleep, and supernatural things are happening. So he probably has no idea what's going on until he gets out into the cold air and realizes, huh, I'm really here. <laughs> that wasn't a dream. You ever ask your spouse, you ever fellowship with a, a, another couple, and then you go to bed and you wake up, and you, you have some type of dream, and you wake up and, about the, the, uh, the evening's event, and, you, and I've done this. I say to my spouse, did we talk about this last night or did I dream that? Because they're kind of so close that you're not sure, right? In Peter's case, again, it was a fantastic event. Remember, um, from the, and I like to do this, from the physiological standpoint, when you sleep, you go into basically five stages of sleep, one through five, and then you have REM sleep, rapid eye movement. And it's kind of weird, you know, you go one through five and then it goes four, three, two, and you just kind of go back and forth and you go through, it's called the circadian rhythm. You go through these cycles. I'm sure some of you are shaking your head. Some of you may have sleep apnea. Some of you may take melatonin. Some of you may be, do both. I don't know. But the thing is, when you wake up, sometimes it's hard to tell reality from, from if you're really sleeping or not. Again, but in Peter's case, you marry that with the supernatural and he's not really sure right away what's going on. And verse 10 through 11, the angel takes him past the guards through the redundancy of gates and he leads him out of the city and the angel's job is done and the angel departs. That's it. You know, Paul talks about in Colossians 2.18, he speaks about even 2,000 years ago, he said, be careful of the worship of angels. And you know, we see that today too. Um, God is mysterious in a lot of ways. You know, the Bible says no one has seen God face to face and lived. So there's a lot of mystery about God. When he pulls us out of this sinful state and we're perfected, you know, we'll get a better idea of, of who he is, like a more fullness. But there's a lot written about angels in, in uh, extra-biblical works, the Apocrypha, the Bible, etc. And people have a tendency to almost latch on to that because we latch on to what's tangible. And in Isaiah 6, we see fantastic visions of the angels. In the book of Revelation, which we're going to see, we see incredible visions of these angels. But notwithstanding all that, they're only servants of God. And people tend to worship man too, a political leader, you know, the Antichrist, when he comes on the scene, people are going to voluntarily worship this man, but he's just a creation. You know, the Bible says, don't get caught up in worshiping the creation, worship the creator. As incredible as you see things around you, maybe you, you think about the angels, you think about great leaders, you always have to say, wow, and God made that and worship the creator. So you have to imagine Peter's elation that he must have felt when he realized what happened to him. It's an incredible feeling knowing that God has his hand on your life. And we have to look at that too. And even in death, death's not the end of the story. It's sad that we read about what happened to James, but James, the the minute his heart stopped beating and his brain activity stopped, it was just like walking into another room. James didn't miss a beat. He goes from the temporal to the spiritual. What does Paul say? He says, I'm not sure what I should do. He goes, oh, to be in the presence of God and to step into eternity, but to kind of be back here is more needful to finish what God has called me to do for your sake. (laughs) I got to stay here because of you people, but I really want to go be with the Lord. 
So it's kind of, it's, you know, from our perspective, we've never talked to anybody who's gone through to the other side, except for when Jesus came down to the earth. But, you know, you have to look at that. Even in death, there's glory. There's glory. And God is a personal God. No matter what happens in my life, I, I know that he's personal to me, that out of all the close to, what, six billion people now on the planet, that I have that personal relationship with him. And if you don't, and you're here for the first time, and you've never heard this kind of stuff, we'll give you the opportunity at the end of service to have that relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. All you have to do is repent of your sins, say, you know what, Lord, I, I know that they're wrong. I believe what you believe. I believe on your son, Jesus Christ, that he died for my sins and he shed his blood for the remission of my sins. And that's all it takes to have eternal life. Verse 10. We see as Peter is going through the, the iron gates, it says that the, the doors opened on their own accord. The Greek word there is automate. Now, think about what word in English sounds like that. Automatic. It's so cool how the... I, I love the Greek language because you can see how a lot of our language comes from it. So automatically, these doors open up. It's a totally supernatural event, along with the chains falling off and the guards being in a stupor while Peter just walks past them. Verse 12 through 13. So Peter is delivered and finally convinced it's reality. And where's the first place he shows up? At a prayer meeting. Now, we've talked about a few things as an indicator to where our heart is. We've talked about um, spending money. If I, you look at my checkbook and it says, new clothes for Joe, a new car for Joe, a bigger house for Joe. Well, Joe's God is Joe, isn't it? Right? If you look at how we spend our time out of 168 hours in uh, a seven-day week and we only give one hour to God, what are we doing with all the rest of those hours after sleep and work? Right? And, and sometimes it's a good indicator of where our heart is. Here, a good indicator of where our heart is, the locations we most frequent. Where do we belong? Where do we not belong? Sometimes we can be convicted. I know as a new Christian, I was convicted. There was just places I didn't belong anymore. And I said to myself, I've got to put those things behind me. Then the attitude is, got to go to church to even it out a little. <laughs> and that's kind of how we, we, we miss the boat for a while until we really understand what it means to have a relationship with God. I want to study the Bible. I want to be in fellowship with my fellow brothers and sisters. I want to be at prayer meetings, right? So Peter wasn't indecisive. As soon as he gets his bearings together, he gets another chance at life, and he knows just where he wants to be, in the company of like-minded believers. And for them to tell James and the church leaders the good news, and we'll see that in verse 17. Real quick, Peter comes to Mary's house. Mary's son, this is, there was many Marys in the Bible, comes from the Hebrew Miriam, which was a common name because of Moses' sister. So there was just a whole bunch of Marys in the Bible. This Mary is the mother of John Mark, who's the writer of the second gospel, who took much of his input from Peter in writing that second gospel. In verse 14 through 16, I just want to read this again because it's, it's kind of like comedy in the Bible. I heard some of you laugh as I was reading it, so I'll go through it again. Verse 14, when she wrote or recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the door or the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. She, she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Now, the first thing is Rhoda is so excited to hear Peter's voice. <laughs> Maybe she's a little ditzy or she's just excited, but she doesn't even open the gate. <laughs> the guy just left prison and, you know, he's got to find some shelter. You know, he shouldn't be out on the street. He's a fugitive, right? 
And she gets so excited and she turns around, but she doesn't open the gate. And there's a prayer meeting that's specifically for Peter's safety, and they don't believe that God's answered, answered prayer is standing right before them, right? I mean, if, if you kind of act it out, it's almost as if, you know, they're at a prayer meeting and they're like, oh, Lord, we fervently pray for Peter. We're not eating. We're fasting. We're, we're in mourning for Peter, for Peter, for Peter. Boom, 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 boom. Hey, guys, it's Peter. Oh, it's Peter. It's Peter. It's Peter. What are you, crazy? It's not Peter. It's his angel. Come back and let's pray for Peter to be delivered. You know, I mean, when you really start to take it in, it's, it's bizarre. It's comical. Sometimes we get into a prayer routine, and it's just that, routine. But the question is, do we really put our faith in the one who's the recipient of that prayer? It's kind of insulting to God to pray without faith. You know, you're basically going through, we're going through a routine, but we're not, you know, fully believing it. There was a situation that happened this weekend, and uh, uh, my stepfather, who, God, I, ha- I hate when, when the Lord uses uh, personal things as object lessons in our lives, but he had some bizarre freak accident, and he, for all intents and purposes, he died. He uh, coded three times, and one time they were doing CPR when they flew him from in a helicopter from one hospital to another. Uh, in 10 minutes, he had no heartbeat. You know, he, they were just doing the pumping and... They ended up putting in hypothermia. They, they froze him, and, and they tried to oxygenate his blood and all that stuff. But the doctors, you know, told my mother, and yeah, it was my mother was crushed. I mean, they told her basically that there was no hope for him, and um, you know, make other preparations and all these things. But uh, you know, I said, I said to my wife, I said, from everything I know, he's he's done. He's dead man, and we have to think about taking my mother in. But but God can do miracles. And I honestly, I really believed. And Tayo, one of my elders, he said, he said the, um, the miracle is already done. He goes, we just have to lay hold of it. Tayo's a great man of faith. Uh, but it's true. You know, we can look at things from the purely temporal and just look at it and say, well, this is it. This is the facts. But, you know, God's in the miracle business. And it doesn't hurt for us once in a while to really believe in God and really trust that he can do amazing things and and interrupt this world, and, you know, uh, Mark's in the back, too. You've had a personal experience, too, with your son. I mean, just fantastic things that God can do. And today, uh, my mother called and said that he's, he's actually, as they're warming him up and bringing him up to body temperature, he's fighting. He wants to be awake. You know, they still got him induced, and he's moving around, and he's trying to fight the tube. So it really is a miracle. And should I be surprised? I mean, I'm happy. I mean, I've really grown to love this man as my stepfather, but I I shouldn't be surprised. I mean, do my emotions get the best of me? Yes, but God can do these things. And I think that I'm guilty of this, guys. I'm not sitting here pointing a finger. I'm guilty of it too. We get into a prayer routine. It's just routine. And we have to believe that God, the one who's the recipient of this prayer, is able to do these things. Okay? He's able to do these things. So these were, you know, we always look in the Bible and we look at these you know, people during the time of Acts and the Holy Spirit was doing great things and there was angels and there was incredible works of God and we say, well, that was then, this is now. Not so. The same God who was there 2,000 years ago is present today. And I remember some Sundays back, one of my prayers when we were done with the service was, who here wants to be more filled with the Holy Spirit? Please stand up. And you all, including me, stood up and we asked God to fill us with the Holy Spirit and do a fresh work of the Spirit that the church doesn't become a routine to us.
So I just want you to get excited about that. So they finally open the door and let Peter in. And verse 16, they look at Peter and it says they were astonished. <laughs> wow, answered prayer right in front of us. How the heck did this happen? They were astonished. And the Greek word that I used some time ago, exestasan, is the same word that was used when Peter's witnesses, fellow Jews, saw the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles and they were also astonished. Wow, God, God moves in the lives of the Gentiles too. So they're besides themselves, they're completely astounded. And again, I look at the scripture as a commentary on human nature. We, we tend to look at these people as even better than us and super believers and super disciples, but they're no different than we are. It's the same people. Somebody said to me, it's the same, it's the same circus, but different clowns, you know? 2,000 years later, different clowns in the circus, in the theater, but it's the same circus, right? Okay, maybe that wasn't the best example. Verse 17 who are we going to now? Uh, he says to tell James and the other disciples, James was the half-brother. This James is the half-brother of Jesus. The one who was martyred was the brother of John, one of the original 12. The James that he's saying to go to now was the half-brother of Jesus. And very interesting, while Jesus was alive, his own brothers did not believe in him. It was only until the resurrection when his own half-brother saw the, his, his half-brother resurrected did he finally believe. And James is so moved that he writes, you know, uh, coded scripture, codified scripture in the book of James. And so does his brother Jude, who, who's another one of his half-brothers. But he's so moved that he ends up, you know, being like the super uh, disciple and he becomes one of the leaders in the early church. So that's why he wants him to be told. And then the one last thing is uh, verse 18 and 19. So now... I'm sure the guards eventually come out of their stupor. The supervisors see, uh, there's 16 of you. There's a bunch of gates open. Where's Peter? I certainly wouldn't want to be on duty when that happens. I tell you that right now. Uh, and in those days, you didn't just get fired. They killed you. Uh, what the law said was that the, pr the prisoner, who whatever his punishment was going to be, if you allowed a prisoner to dis escape, that punishment would now fall on you. So what do they do? Uh, there's a big investigation, there's a big stir, could be charges of conspiracy, think about it, desertion, dereliction of duty, and they eventually lost their lives. But hopefully, they saw the miracle and they believed before that happened to them. We can only hope. Wrapping it up, why does Stephen and James seem to die young, but John and Peter live to an older age? Well, we could ask a lot of questions that tail onto that now, can't we? Why is that brother doing well financially and I'm struggling to pay the bills? Why does that sister have great health and I have a disease that's incurable? Why do some Christians appear to prosper and some don't? Why do some die and some live? These are hard questions. Pastor Lloyd and I were talking um, this past week and we, somehow we got on the subject of several brothers in the last six years that died like young in their 40s, early 50s. And these guys were solid brothers. I mean, these guys were, I'm not going to go through their names, but I'm just thinking about them. I, I would look at them and say they're probably more mature than I am, you know, nicer than I am, more Christ-like than I am. Why did, why did they go? And we can look at that. But remember, remember when Elijah and his, his protege, Elisha, was with him. And Elijah, it was his time to go. God took him. What did Elisha do? Elisha stepped up to the plate. He took the mantle and he, and he said, if I am a prophet of God... Boom, with the water, the water split, and he, and he walked across the water, and he said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that calling. 
I've been, I've seen uh, good saints' funerals and things that have come out of them, and I've seen people step up to the plate and say, you know what, I'm putting away my humdrum, mediocre Christian walk, and that guy made such a difference on so many people, I'm going to step up to the plate. Probably I was one of those people with, with one of those funerals in particular. So God's glory and God's purpose will still be established even in death of a loved one. Even more difficult question is why the righteous suffer and the wicked triumph. That's a sermon all on its own. That question was asked by the psalmist in uh, Psalm 94 and also by Asaph in Psalm 73. And in Matthew 5, Jesus said, the rain rains on the just and the unjust. What this brings us to, and I think that it kind of brings this whole portion of Scripture together, is the sovereignty of God. The fact that divine providence determines or allows the death of some and the life of others. When I did the Wednesday night Bible study this past week on the last chapter of Joshua, it was all about choice and free will, how man has the, the, the free will to choose his life. And because of some choosing, other people are affected often adversely. But we also see that there's, in, in today's reading, we see it's the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty and free will are, are kind of married together. And it's hard to understand, but they go hand in hand. The sovereignty is God's absolute power over all creation. And to be able to interject into the affairs of men and women. Who lives, who dies, who gets healed, who suffers. In this case, which apostle gets freed from prison and which one dies by Herod's sword? Both great men of God. Now, it doesn't mean that, and this is important, that God loved Peter more than he loved James. That is not true. That's a misunderstanding that can cause the wrong view of God. On your own, maybe you want, might want to read Romans chapter 9, which talks a lot about the sovereignty of God. And maybe you, know, you might email us with some questions about that, because it's, it's good reading. But John chapter 21, Jesus told Peter circumstances surrounding his death, and Peter was distracted because of what was happening with John. Peter heard what his fate was going to be. Okay, this was before this in Acts here, when, when Peter was with Jesus. Peter heard what his fate was going to be, and then he heard John's fate. And he was concerned because it, it appeared that John was going to live to be, you know, a lot longer than the rest of them. And Peter had questions about John's walk. And Jesus basically said to him, don't, don't pay any mind to what's going on with John. Worry about what I have for you to do. Right? And that's a lesson that we can learn too. And it's not easy because sometimes we get distracted looking at other people. Maybe somebody has something better than you or maybe something, uh, a better marriage than you or, or, or a better house than you or whatever. And we get distracted. But let's just take Jesus' um, words and pay our mind to what we're doing and what God has for us and let God's sovereign rule and trust that he has the right plan for us and the people around us. Then the next question would be why pray? Is it a contradiction to believe in God and the power through prayer when God's will is ultimately sovereign? They work hand in hand. As a parent, your kids ask you for a lot of stuff. Do you give your child everything, that you give your child everything they ask for? The answer is no. There's often times that you don't give them things based on you know it's going to harm them. My, my son is a sugar junkie, and he, he wants those um, sweet tarts and pixie sticks, and I don't let him have them. One time, he, I think he's hypoglycemic. He was at a, um, his own birthday party, and he was eating all these pixie sticks, and I didn't know it until afterwards. And he started going, oh, my party, it's terrible. He was like, I've been really weird. I'm like, what's wrong with you? But what happened was his sugar dropped, and he was acting all really weird in his own party. 
<laughs> so I don't let him have that stuff anymore. And he gets upset, but, you know, I know it's good for him. Well, God has the added responsibility to, to do, his goal is to glorify him and his plan of salvation, because his plan of salvation is to bring as many people as possible out of the pit of hell and into eternal uh, habitations. That's his plan. So we have to trust his plan, even if we don't see the full benefits of his plan. The bottom line is, bitterness could set in if we don't fully grasp, grasp, grasp sovereignty. And um, at least one or two of those people that I mentioned that have died in the last six years were very close to me. One was my mentor. And I, I took it hard. It, 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 it crushed me in a lot of ways. But God has a plan, and I had to trust that his way was the right way. We're here to serve God and glorify him, and that's it. We have to acquiesce to God's uh, plan and his will to be done, even if it's at our expense. So my plan today in wrapping this, or my prayer today in wrapping this all up, is for us to think about the scripture, think about what happened with James and Peter and other um, characters in the Bible, think about our own lives and you know some of the, the pain and suffering that we've suffered, but to try to really pray and ask God to help us understand his sovereignty. Help us when we don't understand and when uh, things happen that we don't, that hurts us, to ask him basically to show us maybe the bigger picture of what he's doing through this. So that's my uh, prayer for us today. Let's pray. You know, 